Hello, and welcome to this CCHCPE podcast compiled by noted tax authorities Sydney Kess and Barbara Weltman. This CCHCPE podcast may be used to earn valuable CPE credit. Please visit the CCHCPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com. At this site, you will be able to enroll in a CCHCPE podcast course. You will also be able to download an outline of the course that provides a summary of and citations for each key point, new case, and ruling, as well as charts, examples, and other valuable information related to our recorded discussion. This CCHCPE podcast contains citations to CCH's services, the Standard Federal Tax Reporter, the Tax Research Consultant, and the Federal Tax Guide. In your course outline, we refer you to the specific paragraphs in these services where each subject is covered in greater detail. If you are a subscriber to the CCH Tax Research Network, you will have the added capability of direct links within the outline to the citations and court cases. You will also be able to enroll in the final quizzer for this course. We suggest that you listen to this CCH CPE podcast course and follow along in your outline. You may print out the outline or view it on screen. At certain times during the podcast, we will ask you to test your knowledge by answering study questions. These study questions are designed to enhance your learning experience. The answers to the study questions are found at the end of your outline. You may pause this podcast at any time to access the CCH Tax Research linked material or to review the study questions. After you have listened to the complete podcast and reviewed the study questions and answers, you will be ready to take the final quizzer. You may print out the final quizzer for review and then submit your answers directly on our CCH CPE podcast site. Immediately after you submit your completed final quizzer, it will be automatically graded. If you successfully complete the final quizzer with a grade of 70% or greater, you will receive the recommended CPE credit. A CPE certificate of completion will be awarded and the certificate will be printable. Please refer to the CCH CPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com for complete information. So now, on with our program. The IRS has announced new mileage rates for driving in 2007. The rates are slightly higher than they were in 2006. The rate for business driving in 2007 is 48.5 cents per mile, up from 44.5 cents per mile in 2006, and applies to both owned and leased vehicles. Those who use the standard mileage rate must reduce the basis of the car by a deemed depreciation rate, an adjustment necessary for determining gain or loss on the disposition of the vehicle. For 2007, the deemed depreciation rate is 19 cents per mile, up 2 cents per mile over the rate that applied in 2006. The rate for driving a car for medical or moving purposes is 20 cents per mile. This is 2 cents per mile greater than the rate in 2006. The rate for charitable driving continues to be the statutory rate of 14 cents per mile. The special rate for driving for Katrina relief efforts ended on December 31, 2006. And in addition to claiming the standard rate, taxpayers can deduct the cost of parking and tolls. Here's a planning pointer. Relying on the standard mileage rate may not generate the maximum deduction for use of a vehicle. It's helpful to maintain records of the actual cost of driving. That way, the deduction can be based on actual costs rather than the IRS standard mileage rate if this results in the larger write-off. As you may know, companies can simplify substantiation requirements by reimbursing employees for travel and entertainment costs using per diem and IRS mileage rates. If the reimbursement is no greater than the applicable per diem or mileage rate, the amount of the expense need not be substantiated. It is deemed to be substantiated and, where adopted, covered by an accountable plan. The IRS has detected an abuse of per diem reimbursement arrangements. Because of the perceived abuse, the IRS has warned that if companies reimburse expenses at more than the per diem or mileage rate, proper substantiation is required for the excess reimbursements. This substantiation is required no matter how small the excess reimbursements are relative to total reimbursements. Without this substantiation, all reimbursements are treated as paid under a non-accountable plan. That is, all reimbursements are compensation to employees reported on W-2 forms and subject to employment taxes. To avoid this treatment, which is very costly to both employees and the company, be sure to follow reimbursement rules. 
This means that employees must timely refund excess amounts to employers if they cannot be substantiated, and employers must include excess amounts in employee wages. Another planning pointer: anticipate that IRS agents will look carefully at reimbursement arrangements when they conduct any examinations. Businesses should be prepared for this. The IRS is applying this rule starting January first, two thousand seven. It announced the new rule in early November two thousand six. This was to give companies time to avoid the harsh treatment by reviewing and revising their reimbursement arrangements using per diem and mileage rates by December thirty first, two thousand six. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. There have been three interesting developments in the estate planning area. They concern investment advisory fees paid by trusts, private annuities, and bequests of IRAs. Let's talk about each of these common estate planning matters. When trusts pay investment advisory fees, are they fully deductible or subject to the two percent of adjusted gross income floor? This has been an ongoing question for more than a decade. Here's how a recent appellate court decided the matter. The case involved a testamentary trust created for the grantor's son and other descendants. The trustee engaged a firm to provide investment advice, and in 2000 paid a management fee totaling $22,241. The trust's income for the year was $624,816. Generally, a deduction for miscellaneous expenses is subject to the 2% floor. However, the two percent floor does not apply to an expense that's paid to administer a trust, and that would not have been incurred if the property had not been held in trust. The trustee argued that the exception applied. He was a trustee with a fiduciary duty to manage trust assets, and professional advice was a necessary trust administration expense. An appellate court held that the two percent floor applied, limiting the trust deduction to nine thousand seven hundred eighty dollars. In the court's view, only those expenses that are unique to a trust, such as trustee fees or the cost of a judicial accounting for the trust, qualify for the exception to the two percent rule. Moreover, the regulations under Code Section sixty-seven specifically treat investment fees as a deduction subject to the two percent floor. A number of other federal appellate courts, as well as the tax court, have reached the same conclusion. Only the Sixth Circuit continues to take the other view. Another common estate planning strategy is the use of a private annuity to shift assets from the older generation to the younger one at substantial tax savings. Until now, here's how this worked: a parent who owned a business or other appreciated property would transfer it to an adult child in exchange for the child's promise to pay a private annuity. The parent had to report only a portion of the gain as each annuity payment was received. When the parent died, the annuity ended. So that nothing remained to be included in the parent's estate, only funds received by the parent, but not spent by the time of death, are included in the estate. Now, proposed regulations would effectively kill the use of private annuities. Under the proposed regulations, private annuities would be treated the same as commercial annuities. In effect, the parent would be treated as having first sold the business or appreciated assets to the child, and then having purchased an annuity. As such. All of the gain would be immediately recognized by the parent. While the regulations have not been finalized, they generally are effective for transactions on or after October nineteenth, two thousand six. However, the effective date is postponed for six months to April eighteenth, two thousand seven, for transactions in which the issuer of the annuity contract is an individual, the obligation to pay the annuity is not secured. And the property transferred in the exchange is not subsequently disposed of within the first two years after the initial exchange. A planning pointer: the proposed regulations don't apply to charitable gift annuities. A number of major charitable organizations offer donors the opportunity to obtain dependable income from an annuity while spreading out tax on the gain from their property and claiming a charitable donation. Donors can continue to spread gain rateably over the period of the annuity. The IRS may change the rules, however, if it finds abuses. The third estate planning matter concerns leaving IRAs to charity. As you may be aware, those aged seventy and a half and older can make a direct lifetime transfer to a public charity of up to one hundred thousand dollars in two thousand seven. The same was true for two thousand six. This is a way in which to convert the transfer into a tax-free withdrawal. But what about a bequest of an IRA to a charity? 
What about a partial assignment to charity by a decedent's trust? When a charity is named as the beneficiary of an IRA, with the organization's name denoted as such with the IRA custodian or trustee, then the untaxed income within the IRA is picked up by the charity. But because the charity is tax-exempt, it is not taxed on the income. The IRA owner's estate receives a charitable contribution deduction for this donation. Recently, an IRS chief counsel memorandum explored the issue of a partial assignment of a decedent's IRA to charities. Let's look at the facts. A person died owning a revocable trust as well as an IRA payable to the trust upon his death. He specified that his death trust proceeds, which included the IRA, were to be distributed to three charities at the trustee's discretion. Any funds not distributed, the trust residue, would be distributed to his children. The trustee divided the IRA into three shares, one for each of the three charities, pursuant to the terms of the trust. The IRS decided that payments of IRA funds to charities following the grantor beneficiary's death did not relieve the trust of the income obligation on the amounts transferred. The IRS said that the amount of the transfers was income in respect of a decedent under Code Section 691A1, taxable to the trust, and includable in the trust's income. The IRS made the point that the grantor beneficiary died owning the IRAs. The IRA is income in respect of a decedent, or IRD, because it's income that has not been reported by the decedent at the time of death. The trust received an economic benefit by satisfying the pecuniary obligation to the charities with property that neither the decedent nor the trust had paid tax on. Ordinarily, a trust can claim a deduction in computing its taxable income when funds are paid for a charitable purpose. However, in this case, because the trust did not require or direct the trustee to pay the pecuniary legacies from the trust's gross income, it could not claim a deduction under Code Section 642C1. Since the trust used the IRA to satisfy the pecuniary legacies, the trust must treat the payments as sales or exchanges and may not claim the deduction. Here's a planning pointer. It would seem that if the decedent had left the IRAs directly to the charities, the IRD, as explained earlier, would be picked up by the charities. In turn, the charities, which are tax-exempt, would owe no tax on the IRD. Taxpayers who want to obtain installment agreements to pay their outstanding tax bills will have to pay a higher user fee to the IRS. Until now, there has been a flat fee of $43 for requesting an installment payment agreement, the fee that was first implemented in 1995 and has not been raised since. But effective January 1, 2007, the fee for a new installment agreement, where payment is made via direct debit from the taxpayer's bank account, will rise to $52. For those who do not want to use direct debit, requests for new installment agreements will rise to $105. And the cost of restructuring an existing agreement, or reinstating one that is in default, will rise to $45. It had been $24. Taxpayers who have filed their returns but still owe taxes can use the Online Payment Agreement, or OPA, program to request approval for an installment agreement. To access the OPA program through the IRS website, click on Set Up a Payment Plan from the I Need To pull-down menu in the upper right corner of the home page. This program can be used for three options. Making payment in full obtaining a short-term extension of up to 120 days, and setting up a monthly payment plan. The payment in full option means that tax will be paid within 10 days, thereby saving interest and penalties. The IRS will respond to an online request by mail. The IRS may require additional terms before it will accept an agreement request. A planning pointer. It is unclear at this time whether the increased user fee will apply to the online applications that had originally been exempt the full payment, and short-term extension options. Up until now, the $43 fee has been waived. The IRS has yet to state whether it will, in connection with the fee increase, impose a fee for these installment payment options. Finally, the IRS has announced that it's holding refund checks for 2005 for over 95,000 taxpayers, totaling $92.2 million. The average refund is $963. The checks have been returned to the IRS as undeliverable, presumably because taxpayers have moved without notifying the IRS of their new mailing address.
Taxpayers who believe they're owed refunds can check online using the Where's My Refund feature on the IRS website. However, if a check has been lost in the mail and not returned to the IRS, this online feature will not indicate an outstanding refund. In this case, the taxpayer should call the IRS at the phone number provided in your study guide. When taxpayers move, they should update their address information using Form 8822, Change of Address. They can also update address information using the online feature, Where's My Refund?, but only if an outstanding refund can be found there. Another planning pointer. Taxpayers can also avoid lost refund checks by using the direct deposit option. On 2006 returns, a refund can be deposited directly into as many as three accounts. These accounts include not only checking and savings accounts at a bank or other financial institution, but also IRAs, Coverdell Education Savings Accounts, or ESAs, Health Savings Accounts, or HSAs, and Archer Medical Savings Accounts, or MSAs. If the refund is deposited into a single account, information is entered directly on the tax return. If the refund is deposited into two or three accounts, new Form 8888, Direct Deposit of Refund, must be completed and attached to the return. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. Now let's discuss a practice management tip designed to help you better service your clients while increasing your fee income. This tip concerns the refund of the Federal Telephone Excise Tax on Long Distance Service, a tax that had been collected since the Spanish-American War. The IRS lost a number of court battles brought by large corporations who argued successfully that collecting the tax on long-distance service violated the law. The IRS announced it would no longer collect the tax and is poised to refund about $13 billion. This is a one-time opportunity for clients to obtain a refund of this tax paid during 41 months, March 1, 2003 through July 31, 2006. For some clients, the refunds may be quite modest. For business clients, the refunds can be huge. But all clients who have learned about this refund opportunity are intent on receiving what's owed them. Here are some points to help you best serve your clients in obtaining this refund. The refund can be claimed only on a 2006 return. There is no need to amend older returns for the excise taxes paid during those years. And in fact, even if it were preferable, amending older returns is not an option. Use only the 2006 return to obtain a refund. Different rules apply to individuals, businesses, nonprofit organizations, and fiduciaries. Let's run through them. Individuals and Schedule C filers reporting income of $25,000 or less can claim either their actual federal telephone excise tax paid on long-distance service during the applicable period, plus interest, or rely on a standard amount fixed by the IRS. The standard amount is based on the number of exemptions in the household, $30 for one, $40 for two, $50 for three, and $60 for four or more. This standard amount applies without regard to the number of phone lines to the house or whether members use cell phones and Blackberries. No interest can be claimed if the standard amount is used. Schedule C filers with gross income of more than $25,000 reported on this schedule have three options. One, they can use the standard amounts for individuals, which cover both personal and business expenses. Or two, they can use the formula for their business expenses, as explained later, and actual amounts for their personal expenses. Or three, they can use actual amounts for both business and personal expenses. The same rules that apply for those filing Schedule C or CEZ apply as well for those filing Schedules E or F. Encourage clients to review their actual phone bills for this period. They may find that they are entitled to $200 or more in refunds. It may take them a few hours to amass and review these records, but many people still have old phone bills in their homes for this period. They can also contact their phone company to obtain missing bills, but there may be a charge for this service. Taxpayers relying on the standard amount simply enter the appropriate refund claim on a new line provided on their tax return. Line 71 of Form 1040, Line 42 of Form 1040A, or Line 9 of Form 1040EZ. If they are claiming a refund of actual expenses, they must first complete Form 8913, Credit for Federal Telephone Excise Tax Paid, and attach it to the return. 
the IRS released Form 8913 on December 12th. This form allows taxpayers to enter their actual amounts as well as interest. At the time this program was being prepared, no instructions to the form had yet been issued. Taxpayers with income below the filing thresholds may still be entitled to a refund of this excise tax. So, for example, elderly people who do not file returns because their gross income is below the applicable filing threshold may still obtain a refund. Those not required to file a return can get their refund by filing Form 1040EZ-T, Claim for Refund of Federal Telephone Excise Tax. The only restriction? No refund claim can be made by a person claimed as a dependent on someone else's tax return. Here's a planning pointer. Practitioners might offer to prepare this form for relatives of clients as a courtesy. This goodwill gesture may engender client loyalty and translate into referrals and more business later on. Trusts and fiduciaries cannot use the standard amount available to individuals and must claim a refund based on their actual telephone expenses. Businesses and tax-exempt organizations are also entitled to claim a refund. Note that in the case of pass-through entities, the refund is claimed by the business on its return. The amount is not passed through to individual owners. For example, partnerships and limited liability companies claim their refund on Line 23 of Form 1065, and S-corporations claim theirs on Line 23D of Form 1120S. The refund is paid to the business, even though it does not offset any tax liability of the entity. Businesses and tax-exempt organizations can claim a refund based on their actual tax payments or rely on a simple formula created by the IRS for this purpose. Either way, interest is added to the refund amount. The IRS formula for figuring the refund compares the tax on the April 2006 bill with the tax on the September 2006 bill a month for which the old tax no longer applies, to determine the percentage used to figure the amount of the refund. More specifically, the federal telephone excise tax on the April 2006 bill is divided by the total bill to find the percentage of the bill attributable to the federal telephone excise tax. The same procedure is applied to the September 2006 bill. Then, the September result is subtracted from the April result and then multiplied by the total telephone expenses shown on the bills for the 41 months. The result is the refund for the business, subject to caps for small and large employers. For example, if a business has an April 2006 telephone bill of $1,000 that includes federal telephone excise tax of $28, the tax percentage is 2.8%. If the September 2006 bill is $1,100, including federal telephone excise tax of $16.50, the tax percentage is 1.5%. The business's long-distance excise tax percentage is 1.3%, which is 2.8% for April minus 1.5% for September. The business multiplies 1.3% by its total phone expenses over the 41-month period to arrive at the amount of its refund. For employers with 250 or fewer employees, the cap is 2% of total phone expenses for the period. For those with more than 250 employees, the cap is 1% of total phone expenses for the period. The cap is based on the number of employees for the pay period that includes June 12, 2006. Here's a planning pointer. It has been estimated that a business can claim an average refund of $50 per employee. This figure may be greater for businesses that rely heavily on phones, such as brokerage firms and telemarketers. Businesses that cannot locate their old telephone bills can ask their phone companies for copies, but there may be a charge for this service. Companies that rely on the formula need only obtain two bills, April 2006 and September 2006. There are also companies offering to obtain this information for a fee. For businesses with substantial phone bills, it may be worth the cost. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. The Tax Relief and Health Care Act of 2006 just before the holiday recess, a lame-duck Congress passed this law, which contains over $45 billion in tax breaks for individuals and businesses, and makes more than 200 changes to the Internal Revenue Code. Many of the changes are tax extenders of provisions that had expired at the end of 2005. 
Most of these provisions have been extended for two additional years, 2006 and 2007. Tax forms for 2006, however, had already been sent to the printer before passage of the extensions, so official forms don't include many tax breaks. But now we'll tell you about some of the changes, as well as IRS guidance or pronouncements in response to the changes as they pertain to 2006 returns. Many provisions affecting individuals expired at the end of 2005. Most of them have been given a two-year reprieve. Some of the provisions have been changed or enhanced. Here's a rundown of these extender provisions. The above-the-line deduction for higher education, tuition, and fees has been renewed for 2006 and 2007. The deduction of up to $4,000 can be claimed for those with adjusted gross income, or AGI, below set limits, regardless of whether other personal deductions are itemized. The deduction amount and AGI limits have not been changed. The IRS advises those claiming the deduction for 2006 to report it on Line 35 of Form 1040, the line used to claim the Domestic Production Activities Deduction. Write T to the left of the entry if claiming only the Tuition and Fees Deduction. Write B if claiming both the Tuition and Fees Deduction and the Domestic Production Activities Deduction. The above-the-line deduction for out-of-pocket classroom expenses of teachers and other educators has also been extended for two additional years, 2006 and 2007. Those working at least 900 hours during the school year can deduct up to $250 of out-of-pocket classroom expenses, the same dollar limit that had applied prior to 2006. As we mentioned, this is an above-the-line deduction. It can be claimed whether or not other personal deductions are itemized. The IRS says those claiming the deduction for 2006 should report it on Line 23 of Form 1040, the line used to claim the Archer MSA deduction. Write E on the dotted line to the left of the entry if claiming only the educator's deduction. Write B if claiming both the educator's deduction and the Archer MSA deduction. The itemized deduction for state and local sales tax has been extended for 2006 and 2007. Those who itemize deductions can opt to deduct state and local general sales tax instead of state and local income tax. Those eligible to claim either deduction should figure both and then claim the larger one. The deduction is figured using tables contained in IRS Publication 600. Last year, the tables were included in the official instructions to Form 1040. Publication 600 also contains instructions and a worksheet for figuring the deduction. The deduction is entered on line 5 of Schedule A of Form 1040. Write ST on the dotted line to the left of line 5 to indicate the sales tax deduction instead of the deduction for state and local income tax. Here's a practice pointer. The IRS has created an online sales tax calculator to simplify the computation of the allowable deduction. A link to the calculator can be found in your study guide. The deduction is designed to benefit those who live in the eight states without income tax, but can be claimed by anyone paying sales tax. For example, a New Yorker with big-ticket items in 2006 may find that his or her sales tax payments exceed the state and local income tax. The option to treat combat pay as earned income applies through 2007. Military personnel receiving tax-free combat pay through 2007 can elect to treat it as earned income for purposes of the earned income credit. The residential solar energy credit, which had been set to run only through 2007, has been extended for one additional year through 2008. The 30% credit can be claimed for adding solar energy or fuel cells to a residence. The law retains the top credit at $2,000 per year for each category of solar equipment and $500 per each half kilowatt of capacity of fuel cells installed each year. Here's a practice pointer. The new law does not extend the credits for making other home energy improvements, such as installing storm windows and insulation or for buying a hybrid vehicle. The new law extends not only provisions that had expired at the end of 2005, but also a few that were scheduled to sunset after 2007. Here are some of the extenders for businesses. The 15-year recovery period for making leasehold and restaurant improvements has two additional years to run, 2006 and 2007. Generally, capital improvements to commercial facilities are depreciated on a straight-line basis over 39 years, 
However, improvements made in 2006 and 2007 can be depreciated over a 15-year recovery period. Usually, leasehold improvements include interior expenditures to non-residential buildings other than elevators, escalators, and other items expressly excluded. For restaurants, more than 50% of the square footage of the building must be used for the preparation of and seating for on-premises consumption of meals, and the building must have been in service for at least three years. The 20% credit for increasing research expenditures has also been given two more years. It has been extended through 2007 and has been modified starting in 2007. Many tax experts and business leaders had hoped that this credit would become permanent. For 2007, the credit is enhanced by increasing the percentage allowed for the Alternative Incremental Credit, or AIC, and by creating an Alternative Simplified Credit. The Alternative Simplified Credit is 12% of research expenses in excess of 50% of the average of such expenses for the three preceding years. If there are no expenses in any of these years, then the credit is limited to 6% of current research expenses. Several employment credits expired at the end of 2005, but employers can continue to enjoy employment credits in 2006 and 2007. The Work Opportunity Credit, Welfare to Work Credit, and Indian Employment Credit, each of which encourages hiring economically disadvantaged workers, have been extended through 2007. In 2007, the Work Opportunity Credit and Welfare to Work Credit are combined into one credit. The Welfare to Work Credit disappears, but the category of long-term family assistance recipient is blended into the Work Opportunity Credit. Businesses that undertake certain environmental cleanups can write off their expenditures immediately. The option to expense brownfield remediation costs has been extended for 2006 and 2007. Without this provision, the cost of cleaning up toxic and industrial waste would have to be capitalized. The new law extends this expensing option to the cleanup of certain petroleum products. As you may know, it had already been extended to the cleanup of petroleum products in the Gulf Opportunity Zone, an area devastated by Hurricane Katrina. The enhanced charitable contribution deduction for C-corporations that donate scientific property used for research and computer equipment and technology given to schools and public libraries runs through 2007. S-corporations and other businesses are not eligible for this enhanced deduction. This break has been extended to equipment assembled by the donor corporation. The deduction for energy-efficient commercial buildings, which applies for the first time on 2006 returns, has been given an additional year. The deduction of certain costs for these buildings will continue for property placed in service through 2008. The deduction had been scheduled to expire at the end of 2007. The deduction remains at a maximum of $1.80 per square foot. Several business energy credits have been extended for one additional year, through 2008 including the following. The credit of up to $2,000 for building an energy-efficient home. And the credit for renewable electrical energy production. The types of energy resources qualifying for the credit have also been expanded. Health savings accounts, or HSAs, are an IRA type of account that can be used to pay the medical costs of individuals covered by a high-deductible health plan, or HDHP. HSAs first appeared in 2004, but to make them more attractive, the new law contains some important and favorable changes. Most are effective starting after 2006. The annual contributions are no longer limited to the HDHP's deductible. For 2007, annual contributions can be up to $2,850 for self-only coverage and $5,650 for family coverage, regardless of the amount of the policy's deductible. The annual contributions don't have to be prorated for partial year coverage. So if someone has an HDHP starting in April 2007, a full year's contribution is permissible. Transfers from flexible spending accounts, or FSAs, and health reimbursement accounts, or HRAs, are permissible after December 20, 2006, and before January 1, 2012. The limit on such a transfer, which can be done only once, is the lesser of the account balance on September 21, 2006, or on the date of transfer. Tax-free transfers from IRAs after 2006. This, too, is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, 
However, HSA eligibility must be maintained for at least 12 months after the transfer or the IRA rollover becomes taxable. The grace period of FSAs, which can be up to two and a half months after the close of the year, is disregarded for purposes of determining eligibility, provided that the individual has a zero balance in the FSA on December 31st. Employers are allowed to make larger contributions on behalf of non-highly compensated employees. Highly compensated employees are those owning 5% of the company or earning more than a set dollar amount. In the past, contributions had to be made on a comparable basis for all employees. Indexing of the contribution limits and HDHP deductibles will be accelerating in the year. Instead of basing these amounts on the consumer price index on August 31st each year, they will be based on the CPI on March 31st, and the dollar limits will be announced annually in June to give insurers more time to create HDHP policies. The Tax Relief and Health Care Act of 2006 contained another interesting provision, the creation of an IRS whistleblower office. The purpose of the office is to process tips received from individuals who spot tax problems in their workplace. Such individuals can be rewarded with 15 to 30 percent of the total proceeds that the IRS collects if it moves ahead based on the information provided by the individuals. In early February 2007, the IRS announced the formation of the office and named its director. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. The IRS has provided guidance on the distribution provisions of the Pension Protection Act of 2006. The guidance relates to interest rate assumptions for lump sum distributions, hardship distributions from 401k and other plans, rollovers from qualified plans to IRAs for non-spouse beneficiaries, earlier vesting of certain employer contributions, and several other changes. The notice clarifies that an IRA owner, age 70 and a half, who wants to make a tax-free transfer up to $100,000 per year to a charity in 2006 and 2007, can do so by means of a check made payable to the charity, which is given to the IRA owner, who then hands it over to the charity. The $100,000 can be taken from more than one IRA, as long as the total transfer per year does not exceed this dollar limit. This tax-free transfer rule can now be used by beneficiaries as well, so long as the beneficiaries meet the age requirement. In the case of a married couple, each spouse has the opportunity to make an annual tax-free transfer up to $100,000 for a potential transfer by the couple totaling $200,000 per year. Regarding rollovers by non-spouse beneficiaries, plans are permitted but not required to offer this option starting in 2007. If they do, the option must be offered on a non-discriminatory basis to beneficiaries of all plan participants, and there is no mandatory withholding on these rollovers. The IRS guidance makes it clear that such amounts are not included in the beneficiary's gross income. However, required minimum distributions to beneficiaries cannot be rolled over. If a rollover is made, the new account must be titled as follows. IRA for Janet Johnson as beneficiary of Greta Green. 401k and similar plans can allow hardship distributions. Until now, these distributions were restricted to payments to cover medical, tuition, or funeral expenses of a participant's spouse or dependents. The Pension Protection Act expanded permissible distributions to include amounts to cover such expenses for a participant's beneficiary. The IRS has announced new dollar amounts for valuing personal use of company vehicles. This use is a taxable fringe benefit that can be valued as income to the employee in several ways. Two simplified ways are the cents-per-mile valuation method and the fleet average valuation method. The cents-per-mile valuation method can be used only for vehicles first made available for personal use in 2007, whose fair market value is no more than $15,100 for a passenger car and $16,000 for a truck or van, including an SUV and minivan built on a truck chassis. These dollar limits in 2006 were $15,000 and $16,400, respectively. The cents-per-mile valuation method allows the employer to value personal use based on the standard mileage rate, which is 48.5 cents per mile in 2007.
The fleet average valuation method can be used only for vehicles first made available for personal use in 2007, whose fair market value is no more than $20,100 for a passenger car and $21,000 for a truck or van. This method applies when a company has a fleet of 20 or more vehicles. The fleet average valuation method allows the employer to average the FMV of the fleet and then use the average value for the annual lease values table. The vehicle need not be new or even first used in 2007 for either of these valuation methods to apply. The triggering event is that the employee first used the vehicle in 2007. Employers can offer wellness programs as part of their health care plans. The IRS, the Department of Labor, and the Department of Health and Human Services at last released final regulations under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, commonly referred to as HIPAA. These regulations allow employers to operate wellness programs and offer discounts, rebates, lower co-payments, and other incentives to employees. Wellness programs include, but are not limited to, health club memberships, diagnostic testing programs, well-baby visits, stop-smoking and weight-loss programs, and monthly health seminars. Here's a practice pointer. Employers are not required to offer any of these wellness programs. However, if they choose to do so, they must meet two tests, the non-discrimination test and the 20% test. The wellness programs must be offered on a non-discriminatory basis and the value of the wellness benefits cannot exceed 20% of total health coverage costs. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. In the first tax court decision of 2007, the judges ruled for the taxpayer concerning the treatment of pre-opening expenses. As you may know, business startup costs can now be deducted up to $5,000 with excess amounts amortized over 15 years. The immediate deduction is reduced when startup costs exceed $50,000. It's fully phased out when costs exceed $55,000, in which case all such costs must be amortized over 15 years. For startup costs incurred before October 22, 2004, there had been a flat 60-month amortization period. However, the recent tax court decision considered the tax treatment of initial costs for an activity undertaken for the production of income. The court held that amortization is not required for pre-operating costs related to an income-producing activity under Code Section 212. The case involved a taxpayer who bought land in 1998 to start a horse breeding and training facility for profit. At first, profits were modest, but eventually the facility and staff were expanded. In 2004, the taxpayer set up a limited liability company to operate the facility, which was earning about $3,000 a month by 2006. The IRS argued that because the taxpayer intended the facility to become a business, the initial expenses had to be capitalized. The court drew a distinction between capital expenditures, which would include startup costs, and ordinary business expenses, which are currently deductible. Whether an activity is a business or an income-producing activity, the same characterization of expenses applies. That is, something that would be capitalized if incurred by a business would also be capitalized by an income-producing activity. Under the facts of the case, the expenses involved had been incurred after the startup phase. In other words, the expenses were no longer capital expenditures. Instead, they were ordinary expenses incurred during the active conduct of an activity engaged in for the production of income. Code Section 195, governing the treatment of startup expenses, does not override the deductibility of ordinary and necessary business expenses under either Code Section 162, relating to a business, or Code Section 212, relating to an income-producing activity. In another case... The sole owner of a closely held corporation had to recognize income from constructive dividends. In the case, corporate checks of more than $72,000 were payable to the owner, who did not report them as income. He claimed the payments were repayments of loans by him to the corporation. On the corporation's tax return balance sheet, Schedule L of Form 1120, it showed a zero balance for loans from shareholders. There was no promissory note or repayment schedule for the purported loans. 
He also claimed the checks represented payments to him under a line of credit promissory note in which he promised to pay the corporation up to $1 million. There was a second promissory note payable on demand by the corporation to him in the sum of $337,500 with a 9.5% interest rate. The corporation also paid for a Lexus titled to and driven exclusively by the owner's spouse who was not a salaried employee of the corporation. She did not maintain any driving records. The tax court concluded that the payments to him that purported to be loan repayments were constructive dividends, as was the payment for the Lexus. The court dismissed the claim that the owner's handwritten ledger with a notation about the loans proved their existence. In reality, all objective facts showed there were no loans. The corporation never treated them as such. Also, there were never any corporate entries showing the advancement of funds to it by the owner in the first place, so how could there be any repayment? There were no reliable promissory notes, security agreements, repayment schedules, amortization schedules, notations of regular payments, interest calculations, or other similar documents to substantiate the claim that the $72,000 in checks represented repayments of a loan. The payment by the corporation for the Lexus of the owner's spouse was also a constructive dividend. Even though the corporation didn't deduct the payment and noted on the check stub that it was a loan to the owner, the court held that it had to be treated as a dividend. The Lexus never became a corporate asset. It was titled to the owner's spouse. The court imposed a negligence penalty on the underpayment of tax resulting from the failure to report these constructive dividends under Code Section 6662. The lesson of the case? A corporation is a separate taxpayer, and its assets cannot be used by the owner at will. If the owner uses corporate assets as his pocketbook, he will be taxed on them. We want to update you on an important development concerning a decision that was handed down last August. The case concerned a whistleblower in the Air National Guard, who reported environmental hazard violations on an airbase and was forced out. When she was blacklisted and received unfavorable job recommendations, she sued for damages to her reputation and emotional distress. A three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit Court held that her recovery was tax-free, despite the clear language of the tax code limiting tax-free treatment to damages for physical personal injury, which this was not. That court concluded that the recovery was not income to her because it did not replace anything that would have been income to her such as lost compensation. It merely compensated her for the loss of personal reputation and emotional distress. It merely made her whole. In effect, the court ruled that the language of Code Section 104A2, which excludes from income only damages for physical personal injury, is unconstitutional under the 16th Amendment, as applied to damages for non-physical personal injury. The Department of Justice asked for a rehearing en banc, which means the government wanted the entire court, not just three judges, to reconsider the decision. Instead, the three judges agreed to rehear the case and vacated the original decision in the interim. The case will be heard by these three judges on April 23, 2007. The alternative minimum tax remains a growing problem. The National Taxpayer Advocates Report, released in December 2006, ranked the AMT as the most serious of ten problems identified by the advocate, outranking the tax gap and private tax debt collection. If something isn't done soon, about 34% of all taxpayers will pay AMT by 2010, an estimated 32.4 million individuals. Of these, 89% of all married couples with two children and AGI between $75,000 and $100,000 will pay AMT. Representative Charles Rangel, a Democrat of New York who now heads up the House Ways and Means Committee, has vowed to make positive changes in the AMT. Many experts question whether anything significant can be done, other than an annual patch to adjust the AMT exemption, given the substantial revenues the AMT now generates. The IRS has created an online alternative minimum tax assistant, an Internet-based calculator to determine whether an individual is subject to the AMT. The link to the calculator can be found in your study guide. The AMT assistant essentially is an online version of the IRS's worksheet to see if you should fill in Form 6251 alternative minimum tax. The IRS says it takes 5 to 10 minutes to complete the questionnaire used to make this determination. 
Lastly, we want to point out that there have been many, many problems with the refund of telephone excise tax on long distance and bundled service. The IRS has noted a broad spectrum of problems. At one end, many taxpayers eligible to claim the refund have not done so. More than one third of early filers failed to request a refund. 136 million individuals and couples are expected to qualify. Some taxpayers have filed duplicate requests. One on a Form 1040 and another on a Form 1040 EZT. At the other end, some have requested a refund of the entire amount of their phone bills rather than just the 3% excise tax. In other cases, refund claims have topped $100,000, which would have these taxpayers paying more in phone bills than they received in income. The IRS has sent out audit letters to those with suspicious refund claims. The IRS warns that questionable refund claims can result in frozen refunds or even criminal prosecution. The IRS is also looking at preparers who are submitting inflated claims. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. Now let's discuss a practice management tip, an idea or strategy to help you better serve your clients and increase your fee income. Our tip for practitioners is to take full advantage of free IRS online tools and information to help stay current and compliant. Here is a sampling of some resources to use. Sign up for the new e news for small businesses. This electronic communication from the IRS is dispatched every Wednesday via email. It includes important upcoming tax dates, what's new on the IRS Small Business Self Employed website. Reminders and tips to help small businesses comply with tax rules, and IRS news releases and special announcements. Directions for subscribing are included in your study guide. Listen to Tax Talk Today, the tax show for the tax pro, which is a free live web based program on various tax topics. For example, the program for February 2007 covered simplifying tip reporting. Directions for registering for upcoming programs can be found in your study guide. Become familiar with the Office of Taxpayer Burden Reduction, an arm of the Small Business Self Employed Division of the IRS. The mission of the Office of Taxpayer Burden Reduction is to save taxpayers time and money in tax compliance. Practitioners can submit suggestions to the IRS for ways to implement burden reduction, such as record keeping simplification, improvement to tax forms, and other ideas. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. And that concludes this CCH CPE podcast. As a reminder, if you're interested in earning valuable continuing professional education credits, please enroll in this course at cchpodcast.com. In our next CCH CPE podcast, we'll focus on another area of importance for your practice, and we'll provide commentary on some current developments that can be useful to your clients. We thank you for listening to this edition and hope you have found this program to be a valuable and interesting learning tool. And on that note, we'll bring this CCH CPE podcast to a close. Until our next podcast, goodbye and good luck in your tax work. CCH audio programs are published to promote sound thought in economic, legal, and accounting principles relating to tax and business law. CCH's editorial policy is to allow frank discussion in these areas. The opinions and interpretations expressed are those of the authors. CCH is not engaged herein in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services, and the authors are not offering such advice in this program. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.